0: I'm glad that the stigma around mental health is diminishing quickly, I think, uh, that we're normalizing counseling and therapy because we are both body and soul. Proper anthropology, biblical anthropology is that we are both body and soul. We cannot simply treat medical issues. We need to treat spiritual, mental, heart issues, the non-physical things. I'm glad we're having those conversations.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome back to Christ and Culture. Today we have a super exciting show lined up, one that I've been looking forward to for some time, Dr. Keithley. In our Christ and Culture Conversation, we will talk with Dr. Kristen Kellen, professor here at Southeastern, about anxiety, depression, and mental health.
2: I'm looking forward to that conversation myself. And then after that, Dr. Quinn will tell you what's on his bookshelf right now.
1: But first, let's begin with our new segment, In the News. Dr. Keithley, this weekend marks the 20th anniversary, believe it or not, of 9-11. Do you realize we're teaching students who weren't alive or who simply don't remember 9-11. Some of our listeners, however, will remember exactly where they were and when they heard the news that the first tower and then the second had been hit. Dr. Keithley, 20 years later, how should we remember this day, especially in light of Christ and the gospel?
2: Yes, I do remember exactly where I was 20 years ago. I was at a New Orleans seminary where I was dean of students, and outside my office door, two students were arguing about something that had happened. And I went outside and said, fellas, what in the world is going on? And they said, haven't you heard? And I hadn't. That's how it I It hadn't am. hit
1: your Twitter feed it, yet.
2: Well, <laughs> at that time, you know, it, that, that that goes to show you how much has changed in 20 yeah. years. Not only was there no Twitter, there was no Facebook
1: at that time. Mm-hmm. No smartphone.
2: Yeah, yeah uh, there was no smartphone. In fact, even BlackBerry uh, did not have uh, the kind of phone that could communicate in the ways that our phones do today. It is almost impossible in the moment to discern the will of God are what God in his providence is doing. Almost always, we can discern providence best through the rearview mirror. And many times, we need the distance to assess better. At that time, uh, we reacted as uh, often people do whenever they're shocked, wounded, we attacked. And and I think that much of what we did was certainly right and appropriate. But we also have to remember that the kingdom of God is not any one nation and that the Christian church is not any one people. And we always must remember our dual citizenship. That I'm an American, I am a proud American, glad to be an American, love my country. But first and foremost, we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things mm. will be put in order.
1: It was uh, such an interesting time. I was actually on a on a job site. It was my first year of college, so I was a freshman, and I only took classes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I would work construction on Tuesday and Thursday. I was working for my wife's uncle, um, and I was outside cleaning up or doing whatever. The By the time we get the news that the first towers hit, it's somewhere around nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning, and the sheetrock guys come running out on the front porch, and we—they were crazy anyway. We thought, literally, thought that they were hungover or high, and we paid them absolutely no attention. I went home at lunchtime, walked in. About the time that I walked in to my parents' house, I could see the television screen and saw the second plane fly into the tower. And it was one of those times—I um, can only think of maybe two times in my own life where you—you you kind of feel your knees buckle underneath because all the things that you have rested on by way of just personal and emotional foundation. They, they seem like they're a little shakier than you thought, which, which forces us back to, kind of like what you were saying, a, the reality that uh, we have our citizenship here on Earth, and in our case in the United States, but we have a higher citizenship, that despite what's going on with our international enemies or allies, as well as despite what's going on with perhaps the economy or viruses or whatever else is going on, that it continually reminds us to revisit our foundation and just how strong it is in Christ— the only foundation that doesn't move. It's kind of this Matthew 7 reminder that things like 9-11 or things like COVID pandemics and what have you, they help us to see really just how sandy our foundation might be as opposed to how rocky it might be on Christ. In recent years, we've seen a growing conversation about anxiety, depression, and mental health In particular, the pandemic has thrust these topics into the national conversation even more than ever. Today we want to discuss how our Christian faith shapes
2: our understanding of these topics and how it can inform potential solutions. To help us navigate these waters, we're honored to have with us today Dr. Kristen Kellen. Dr. Kellen is an assistant professor of biblical counseling. Her focus is on counseling children, teens, and their families. Kristen is co-author of two books coming out this fall, The Gospel for Disordered Lives and The Whole Woman. She's married to Josh and they have three children. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Kellen.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks.
1: Dr. Kellen, I want to start out with, we've got a handful of questions we're going to run past you today, but to begin with, just defining terms. So as we talked about Um, anxiety, depression, mental health, all these kinds of things have been on our cultural radar for a long time. But the last 14 months in particular, it's gotten particularly centered to our cultural radar, even in our churches. Let's start off defining terms. What is anxiety and depression? How are they similar? How are they different?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, a great place to start. Anxiety and depression both fall under the uh, disturbing emotions kind of category. So we, we put them together, but they're still very different things. So Anxiety uh, is very much related to fear in the sense that it is a fear that's situated in the future, right? It's a fear of something happening. Uh, And we'll we'll talk more about that later, but anxiety is this internalized fear of something bad. Then depression is in in some ways centered around hopelessness. Uh, So you can see some similarities there, but hopelessness or helplessness are what characterize depression. Sometimes what comes with depression is sadness, Sometimes not, but I like to think of it more in terms of hopelessness. The unique thing about both of these though is that there's also a very physical component to each one. All of us can probably remember when we got very anxious about something and, and our heart started racing, our muscles got tense, right? That fight or flight was activated in us because we thought there was a threat or a danger. That gets activated, that happens in us physically with anxiety. With depression, similar things happen, it's just not fight or flight. Our body feels weighty or heavy or unclear. Uh, we think about depression and people describe it as if they're in a fog and they can't think clearly or, or see through that fog. Uh, but these are physical and cognitive and emotional things that are happening in people um, and they're difficult. As you mentioned, Dr. Quinn, um, that has kind of come to the forefront over the last 14 months in
2: particular. Uh, That's a very helpful distinction. And speaking of the last 14 months, reports have it that rates of anxiety and depression have dramatically increased during the pandemic. To ask an almost obvious question, what's behind the rise?
0: That's a great question. Uh, I remember back at the beginning of the pandemic, Uh, telling my husband, if this lasts any more than a couple of months, we're going to see a spike in counseling, in anxiety, depression, and marital counseling, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, I think it's because we weren't meant to live in isolation. Uh, And so when we have these problematic emotions, these struggles, God made us to live in community and to be able to get help within our community. And what COVID did is it isolated us. It separated us such that we didn't have a way to process these feelings. And then certainly COVID plays off of our fears. There's these fears of what's going to happen, the what ifs, and then this helplessness that we see in depression. Uh, I think those are very much tied together as to why we've seen these spikes. I will add as well, I've seen this spike even more so with teenagers uh, because they are very social people generally, and they don't have the capacity to think through how do I handle these types of stressors and these types of fears.
2: Let me give a follow-up on that. Sure. We were already struggling with an opioid crisis Mm -hmm. before the COVID pandemic. And now it appears that there has been a dramatic spike in the number of deaths. How has being alone or being isolated figured into that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think people use substances or behaviors to cope. Oftentimes, it's what's been modeled for them. So we see that generally, generationally even. Uh, But I think this isolation, there hasn't been people to step in and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I've got a better way. Right. I've got a better way of handling these fears and the sense of helplessness or hopelessness that they're
2: fighting. And and for for many of them, so much of the therapy involved being involved with others who could hold them accountable, being in community, having all of the various types of support that was very close and tight knit. And the pandemic, the very instructions we were given in the pandemic
1: worked against that.
0: Absolutely. You're absolutely right.
1: Kristen, you mentioned that one of the areas in terms of demographics where we've seen such a spike is among teenagers. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember if you and I talked about this over the last few months, but um, we recently at our church finished a series on Philippians, and you get to chapter 4 in Philippians where Paul says, be anxious for nothing, right? But uh, a little bit earlier in, in that same letter, he's actually talked about he himself being anxious. So he knows, here this great apostle is telling us be anxious for nothing, yet he's already admitted that he's he can be anxious, and of course he's in jail. <laughs> he's writing this from prison. I also have a 14-year-old, and so I've, I've seen her battle some of this. I've seen this in our church, among our youth, among our children. I've had multiple parents over the last few few months come to me and say not only are they anxious and wanted counseling for that, but their 8-, 9-, 10-year-olds are anxious. Mm-hmm. And even a little bit of research that I've done there is this is the most anxious generation on on record. Uh, That's before we even talk about medication and those kinds of things. So Dr. Keithley asked you a minute ago what's what's behind a lot of this, but I want to dig in specifically to teenagers. What's going on with teenagers that perhaps is causing the spike? And I'm thinking of another stat that's coming to mind. I heard David Brooks mention this just in passing in the middle of of COVID, in fact, that teen suicides are up 80% since 2012. Now, I don't know how to fit all those pieces together. I'm just curious, in light of your experience and expertise, what's behind that for for that generation?
0: Yeah, I think one of the complexities with teenagers in particular, uh, and we could spend all day talking about this, is the development of their brain. And the reality that the ways our brains develop is that emotions develop before logic, right? This is why Mm -hmm. three and four year olds have tantrums and meltdowns, because the emotion parts of their brain develop before logic. In a teenager, that's on overdrive. They feel all the feels. <laughs> uh, in isolation, they don't have someone looking at them saying, girl, calm yourself. They don't have that feedback to, to be a gatekeeper. But their logic centers, their prefrontal cortex isn't developed by far. That harnesses that. And so what we see is uh, teenagers who are isolated, and yet they're, they're on social media, so things are happening and they're being influenced, but they have, they have no immediate personal interaction that's feedback for them. And developmentally speaking, their brain's emotion centers are in overdrive mm-hmm. and they can't logically think through fully how to sort through all of that. Uh, so I think there's a lot of really complex factors here and that's why I started with kind of the physical and the non-physical mm-hmm. aspects of these things. It's because both of them are real. And especially with teenagers, and and the role of media and all these voices that are coming at them, in some ways they struggle with life experience and capacity to think through those well.
1: Can I ask a follow up on that? So you and I both probably grew up in what we might call the Mr. Rogers era, right? Yes. Um, And I recall, in fact, uh, my mom reminded me of this this not too long ago, that I'd forgotten that I'd received so much of this from him just as a child watching the show in kindergarten or preschool or whatever. The emotional intelligence, yes, which has become really a a buzz phrase nowadays, and people continue to point back to to people like him, who were helping us as adolescents uh, sort of develop some of that and to make some of those sort of logical and emotional connections. I'm really just raising that as a broad category of how do we help our kids and our young people and the kids in our church? How do we help them to make those? sort of logic plus emotion connections, how do we help to develop their emotional intelligence?
0: That's a fantastic question. My mind first goes to good modeling. So parents, parents who are listening, model for your kids and talk through for your children. Hey, this is happening. Here's how I should feel about that. And not only how I should feel about it, how I should respond appropriately. Mm-hmm. We have to be the instructors for our children in these, in these ways. Benjamin, I know you're a pastor, right? You can model that for your youth. And, and help them see when we when we see an instance like this, here's how I feel and here's how I respond. Um, so so open conversation like Mr. Rogers did and modeling for them, giving them experience that helps teach them and be formative to them.
2: That's helpful. So conversations about mental health have become more and more prominent. I'm thinking now uh, the Olympics uh, with Simone Biles expressing publicly some of her mental health struggles. I think you'd see this as a positive trend. Uh, How so?
0: Yeah, I'd absolutely see it as positive. I think even if the conversations don't go exactly where I would want them to go, I'm thankful we're having the conversations. Uh, To see such a public figure like Simone Biles, right, and the backlash and support at the same time that she garnered is interesting. But I am glad we're having those conversations. I'm glad that the stigma around mental health is diminishing quickly, I think, uh, that we're normalizing counseling and therapy because we are both body and soul. Proper anthropology, biblical anthropology is that we are both body and soul. We cannot simply treat medical issues. We need to treat spiritual, mental, heart issues, the non-physical things. I'm glad we're having those conversations.
1: I know that there's no one-size-fits-all solution to matters of depression and anxiety and and that whole category of of, of struggles, but in general, what kind of things would you begin to recommend to people who are struggling in these ways, resources that you might recommend, spiritual disciplines and habits that you might recommend, any of those kind of things?
0: Yeah, great question. Uh, Absolutely get out of isolation live in community, be transparent with other people. I would venture to say that the actual rates of anxiety and depression are much higher than are reported. Uh, So the likelihood is is that if someone is struggling with one of those things and they reach out in their community, they're going to find someone else who has struggled with that as well. Uh, And they can receive help and support and feedback from someone else who has struggled too. Uh, so living in community, uh, certainly counseling therapy, uh, obviously as a counseling professor, I'm pro counseling. <laughs> so I encourage someone towards that. Some great resources, Ed Welch has fantastic books on both of these topics, highly recommend those. He has some workbooks that go along with them. But I think the, the isolation really is the big factor, um, sharing with someone with transparency, these struggles and being willing to get feedback and and encouragement in them.
1: Can I ask a follow-up on that? So you mentioned earlier on and then there again that with depression and anxiety, being in community is a big thing. And yet, um, Probably the kind of anxiety that I encounter the most from uh, from people that I'm around is social anxiety. So the kind of anxiety that they're battling the most is actually being in public or being around other people. So how do we how do we address that? Where you're saying be in community, but it seems to be when they get into a crowded room or around other people that that's not their immediate family. That's what seems to induce the highest level of anxiety for them.
0: Yeah, that's a great clarification. Uh, when I say get in community, I mean deep purposeful community. So you said at the end of that, Benjamin, that when they get around their family, yeah. that's what I envision. So when I think community, I think about my small group, right, of a couple of people that I can engage with and be transparent with. That's what I'm meaning, right? Absolutely larger community. That is more to, to look outward instead of inward, which these tend to push us towards. Uh, but I mean, get in community in the sense that that we would with a solid family. Right, that that we're sharing really what's on our heart, what our struggles are, what our thoughts are, um, the messages that are running through our minds in either one of these cases, um, and be transparent with them in a real way. I'm not talking about just being in a group of people. I would have the same advice for someone with social anxiety, be known.
2: An article that I read recently made much of the fact that fewer people have a close friend or friends it's remarkable how the number of people who say that they have someone close in their lives, that they can just be honest, transparent, and be a friend and have them uh, a friend to them, that that has dropped dramatically in the last 20 years. Are you saying that this is a factor in, in the problems that we're seeing?
0: I think it very well could be. And I think part of that though, Dr. Keithley, is with the rise of social media, I control what other people see it's fake in some ways it's false Uh, but when I am in close-knit community they see the good and the bad my closest friends have seen my good moments and my bad moments and they love me anyways and vice versa that transparency but I think as the increase in media has happened we've had this sense of I need to portray my best self even if it's false And that has led to this divide. You know, I wouldn't attribute it solely to that. But yeah, I think it's a factor.
1: One narrative, cultural narrative about Christianity that this conversation feeds right into, if we're not careful, is that Christianity is valuable or it's advantageous to help us cope with our anxieties, to help us cope with depression. It feeds right into that sort of therapy kind of narrative that that's really what Christianity is about. It's just to help us get through the day. But I think there's more to it than that, and I suspect you do as well. So help us with the connection between how does Christ and the gospel really attack or address this issue that's more than just some kind of a therapy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I see that too. Uh, That's a very egocentric, self-focused view of Christianity, that it's just a tool mm-hmm. to make me feel better. Um, there are all sorts of flavors of that, but that's that's one of them. And, and yet I think reality is quite the opposite. With anxiety and depression, the the tendency is to focus inward on my fears, my hopelessness, my helplessness. But the, the gospel eliminates those. I'm not saying Christians can't struggle with anxiety or depression, but truth is found in Christ and his word. It counters my irrational fears. It counters this idea that I am hopeless because Christ is my hope. Uh, and if when we can understand that truth, and that truth can be deep seated, even in the midst of anxiety and depression that is physical or, or has physical manifestations, I can direct myself. I can I can take those thoughts and and put them on truth, hmm. uh, and not in a way that's self-serving, but it's a way that points me outside of myself to God and to hope in him and hope in the gospel.
1: When we talk about we want to be fear free in many ways. Or we want to be eliminated from fear, rid ourselves from these fears. And yet the scriptures with imperative language say, but fear the Lord above all things. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge yes. or the beginning of wisdom. How does that factor into this?
0: It's not that it eliminates fear but it properly orients it. The scriptures tell us over and over, we don't fear our circumstances. We don't, we don't have to fear man, right? What can man do to us? But we fear the Lord and it's a properly placed fear, not an improperly placed fear. Uh, and so I would, I'm not advocating for the elimination of fear. I'm saying we are pushing against irrational and lie-based fear as opposed to truth-based mm, yeah, awe and, and fear of the Lord.
2: We have been talking about how a person who is struggling with loneliness and being in isolation uh, struggles with anxiety and depression, but none of us are actually an island unto ourselves. So often people who are struggling with these issues, uh, they're impacting, uh, there are family members who are also impacted by their loved ones suffering. So what encouragement or wisdom would you give to those loved ones and family members who are suffering from anxiety and depression?
0: Fantastic question, because it's true. Uh, And I probably do just as much counseling with family members as I do with folks struggling in these ways. Uh, First, I would say recognize that it is impacting you. As I talk to parents, the impact on them is huge when their kiddo struggles with anxiety or depression. Let's recognize that, pull it out in the open. Second, I think we just give encouragement that this is not the way things are always gonna be. We can have hope in eternal reality that should the Lord in His sovereignty allow these struggles for this person's life, this is not all there is. We can look forward and have a a different perspective on this. But third, my mind goes back to, uh, Benjamin, you said earlier about the focus of Philippians and Philippians 4. I love verse 8 there, that anything that is true, he goes on and gives a long list. Speak truth to them. Counter those lies and those messages that that young person or that family member has playing through their minds. Ask specific questions, but point them to truth uh, and remind them of those truths often uh, can go far. If you have any role in getting them help, parents of teenagers, if they express these things, find them a counselor. More and more, I'm starting to think that any teenager could benefit from having a counselor. Uh, But especially if they express these concerns or these struggles, connect them with somebody. Get help and find someone who can regularly encourage them.
2: Dr. Kellen, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: My pleasure.
1: Southeastern believes it is important to
2: support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code Culture all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf, in which professors at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary give you a peek into what they're reading. Today, Dr. Quinn shares with us, so Dr. Quinn, what's on your bookshelf?
1: It's not what you think. So I know you're waiting on me to say something deep and remarkable about Augustine or Bonaventure or somebody like that, and that's not it. What's well, on my bookshelf right now, among many other things, but this is the one that comes to mind uh, immediately, is a book that I read for the first time uh, over 20 years ago as an older teenager who was getting involved in really kind of a small discipleship or accountability group. I'd never even heard of these things, but I was I was trying to to walk seriously with the Lord and trying to be spurred on by older men and older believers. And we were invited to read together R. Kent Hughes, Disciplines of a Godly Man.
2: Yes, that's an excellent book.
1: So I read it 20 years ago. Um, I didn't remember a ton of it. I, I wasn't much of a reader at that time. I was just kind of finding myself even in education. But we, we've just t- returned to uh, what, we, what we call Sunday school at our church. We, we call them equip classes for the adults. And one of those classes focuses on spiritual disciplines. And we've, we're, we're offering this book for the men, spiritual uh, or disciplines of a godly man for the men, and then disciplines of a godly woman written by Kent Hughes' wife, Barbara, for the women. I actually, when I picked it back up, and there's a, there's a new edition of it now, it's about 19 chapters, the, the men's book, 17 chapters for the women's book, broken down into five different parts, five different kinds of categories of discipline that are really good for us as evangelicals and even more as Baptists to think carefully about. When we think about, even yesterday as we started this conversation with our equip class, and I'm saying, what kind of spiritual disciplines ought we have? And immediately you get, well, prayer and Bible reading. But we as Baptists struggle to get farther beyond that. Well, what else should we do? And it tends to be kind of crickets in the room at that point. Well, the the church has a rich tradition of, of really strong discipline and striving for godliness that doesn't fall into a legalism. It just actually seems to mimic what the psalmist says, that we delight in the law of the Lord and we seek to walk in His ways. So as I picked up the book again, I I sort of thought this is probably going to feel old. It's probably going to feel like it was written 30 years ago or 25 years ago, whatever it was. And I've been uh, really grateful and refreshed that it felt like it was written yesterday. And it continued to challenge me all over again.
2: Well, I'm still thinking about your opening statement when you said, you know, you were a teenager just 20 years ago. When I was a teenager, which was much more than 21, 22 years ago, something like that, add a few more decades, there were almost um, there was almost nothing in -hmm. the area of spiritual disciplines. Dallas Willard came out with his book, and so did Richard Foster back in the 1970s. And I am glad to see the rediscovery of the spiritual disciplines in the evangelical world. And I think that, as you just pointed out, there's still, for many Baptists, we're still catching up. Yeah. in this area and how important it is to the Christian life to develop these disciplines. It's a very good recommendation. Anything that R. Kent Hughes publishes, I, I almost always enjoy reading. It.
1: Absolutely. And so much more we could say about that. But it's fascinating that for evangelicals broadly, we, we ask them, what is your discipline routine with respect to your physique? And even if they don't have a good one, they feel like they should, and they know that there's a lot that goes into what we put into our bodies and then how we exercise our bodies. And they at least have a little more of a sophisticated idea for what that regimen might look like. When we talk about spiritual disciplines, we've, we've got a ways to go. But we need to get into that. To borrow from Kent Hughes' metaphor in his introduction, we need to get back into that gym just as much as we get into the gymnasium for our bodies.
2: Tell us again the title of the book.
1: Disciplines of a Godly Man by R. Kent Hughes and then the complement to that, Disciplines of a Godly Woman by Barbara Hughes.
2: Thank you, Dr. Quinn. And thank each of you for listening to Christ and Culture today. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with a friend. We'll see you next week.